Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, today we're talking about an education reform that already feels like a million years old in in reform time. So you're talking about like a decade or two ago. I am. And I'm talking about small schools. Ooh, you've got me. (laughs) Now, I happen to know that you have written a page or two about this topic, Uh and our guest has as well. We're talking to a writer named Michael Hobbs, who grew up in Seattle, attended a comprehensive high school that then became an early subject of the Gates-funded pilot experiment in taking big schools, turning them into small schools, and watching miracles happen. And he wrote a really great piece about it in Pacific Standard. So... He he doesn't get into this in our interview today, but one of the he had trouble placing that piece because editors had a simple question: Do small schools work? <laughs> and that's that's a question that Bill Gates asked many times, and it eventually led to the demise of the small schools movement. And I, I think this is a great case for us to look back on as we're considering how the influence of Billionaire philanthropists shapes the landscape in public education because, of course, you know it, it shapes a particular reform movement. But those movements then, of course, have a much broader effect on public education, on the narrative that's, that gets told about uh, the possibilities for change in public schools, on the approach uh, to public education, and on the kind of policy churn uh, that we end up seeing uh, from reforms being parachuted down repeatedly over and over. So this story actually starts when Michael Hobbs gets an idea to go back to the high school that he attended and he he was more and more interested, and in, in we all are, about what's happening with today's teens, right? He had heard that they've been destroyed by their devices, that they are unlike any generation in, in recent history. And he decided that he would go embed himself at the high school where, that he attended for two weeks, and he would see for himself what, you know, where teens went off the rails. So here's Michael Hobbs. Yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of surprised that they actually let me come there because this is like this is like the kind of thing that like a quote unquote like real journalist would never do but you know we all kind of read these articles about teenagers and kind of the state of teens today and so for years i had read about like you know what's happening with teenagers and these new kids and kind of feeling more and more distant from this next generation and so i thought wow it'd be interesting to like go to a high school and spend time there talking to kids and finding out like what's really going on. And that's literally what I wrote to the high school. I was like, hi, I used to go there. I'm kind of a journalist now. Can I just come and hang out and like talk to the kids and find out how teens are different now than they were when I was a teen? And like no journalist would ever do this, right? No, like journalists would always have a pitch. They would have an idea. They would have like a bunch of contacts in mind. I just like literally wrote my old teachers and was like, hey, can I come hang out? And surprisingly, they were like, yeah, sounds good. Be here on Monday. And so I took two weeks off from work and I went to Seattle and I just hung out at the school and I had literally no idea what I was going to write about. So I had like, I was just like furiously taking notes the whole time. I talked to the guidance counselors. I talked to like the lunch, the people that make lunch. I talked to the janitors. I talked to the kids. I talked to everybody. 
And it was within like 15 minutes of getting to the school that I was like, oh, the kids are not the story here. Like the kids are interesting and fascinating and great, but like I, I'm not worried about them. The adults aren't worried about them. Like no one was like, oh, this next generation is like all sexting each other. Nobody was concerned about that. Everybody was talking about the world they're growing up in, the way that educating them is so much harder, the way the class sizes have gotten bigger. I mean, everything became about the structures like the minute you start talking to people about what's going on at the school. So when I went there, it was sort of considered like the, the worst quote unquote good school in Seattle. So it was a bunch of kids that didn't get into Roosevelt, which is the good school up the hill. Uh, a bunch of kids got kicked out of other schools. A lot of potheads. People, you know, we had, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it was something like our, our entering class was like 700 kids. And then the next year it was like 300 kids. And the next year it was like 150 kids. And the graduating class was like 65 kids. Like it was just one of those schools that just hemorrhaged people. Nobody was proud to go there. It was just kind of a... It wasn't super troubled, but it was not a school that like anybody like particularly wanted to go to. And that was very obvious when I was there. And then sort of through friends, various little brothers, basically, I kept hearing about how Nathan Hale was like this turnaround story. And they had done this thing with academies, which I had never heard of. And that like all of a sudden this school in the middle of like a super like white trash section of Seattle was like really in demand and people were moving to the neighborhood and people were really excited about the school. But that was like the extent that I knew about it. I had no idea about the Gates Foundation and the Department of Education. I had no idea that this was kind of a paradigm that took over the whole country. I just knew that my school was bad when I went there and then it had become good somehow. We're going to pause Michael's story here, and I want to ask Jack to provide us with a little bit of context. So Michael went back to the giant Seattle comprehensive high school that he once attended, and he finds that it's been divided up into academies. What does that mean? The academies uh, are a way of creating a small school without creating a small school. And another phrase for that is a school within a school. And that was the um, the off-brand version of a small school when they didn't have the money uh, to build a new small school uh, for each of the quote-unquote academies that they would be breaking a big school up into. And so they kept them all in the same building they had been in but pretended that there were now several schools within that large school. And so this was uh, a part of... Uh, the Gates Foundation's effort to turn all of America's big high schools into small high schools. And this, of course, came after they realized that even Gates money uh, couldn't actually produce that kind of infrastructural change. Um, and the U.S. Department of Education actually threw in about a billion dollars to do this school within a school stuff as well. Let's go back to Michael. He embedded himself at his former high school, and he picks up pretty quickly that the changes there go way beyond just dividing the school up into smaller clusters of kids and teachers. As he discovers, his former principal and the teachers at Hale basically spent years reimagining what that school could look like. Uh, what I found out later, what I found out once I started hanging out at the school was that it was actually a lot more complicated than that. And there were a lot of things in there that kind of didn't get noticed when the idea got scaled up. So one of the things that Mr. Benson, my principal did was for three or four years before they undertook any reforms, he started asking teachers, what don't you like about this school? What do you think this school needs? And the teachers, so when I was at the school, I didn't know this, but my teachers were meeting on Saturday mornings at each other's houses 
to brainstorm what the school could look like. What do we want to be different? What do we what do we fail at? What are we good at? Everything just kind of thinking in a really, really open kind of way, what do we want the school to be? And so they came up with all these other changes that were far and beyond just clustering the kids into 90 students. So the biggest thing was they had way more teacher collaborations. There was a lot of peer sitting in on each other's classes. They called it teaching with the door open. So they would sit in on each other's classes and give critiques. Uh, they had a 20 minutes of silent reading. They created this kind of homeroom thing that was deliberately supposed to get to know the kids. They came up with, um, or no, they, uh, they started the school day later because a lot of the kids were really sleepy. They focused tons and tons and tons of attention on the freshmen to kind of push them on the trajectory toward college as soon as possible. So there were all these other kind of supporting things that had been done that were above and beyond the structural changes, but no one really noticed those things when the structural changes started becoming this like, oh, hey, every school in America needs to do this. I just want to interject here and say that what he's describing is not the small schools movement as it was carried out, just in case any of our listeners are like starting to hear this and think, gosh, I, my school got changed into a small school. And, you know, we didn't experience all of this like focus group style rethinking what we wanted to do as educators. Um, this sounds a lot like what Debbie Meyer wrote about. She is often referred to as the godmother of the small schools movement. Um, so she wrote a book called The Power of Their Ideas, uh, where she described her successes at Central Park East in New York, which was a small school. But of course, it was more than just a small school. It was a small, democratically run school that was highly diverse socioeconomically, where teachers were empowered to shape their own curricula, where they were working with families, where they were upending uh, notions about you know traditional uh, ability. That is a much richer portrait of uh, you know what needs to happen to turn a school around and smallness is a part of that in Debbie Meyer's pitch here. Um, but of course that is not the message that ended up being pushed by the Gates Foundation. There's a particularly telling moment in Michael's story when he mentions the reason why Hale High ultimately lost its Gates Foundation funding. And and I'll I'll spoil the surprise. They took too long to implement the reforms. But the reason that they took so long was that the teachers saw the structural changes that they were making as a way to address challenges that went way beyond fixing the school itself. What's so interesting talking to the the teachers, they they were really concerned about this issue of uh, splitting the kids into gifted and general population tracks. This was something that was kind of accepted. Every school I ever went to in public schools in Seattle had this structure. And I don't think very many teachers or very many, um, well, actually the teachers did, but I, I don't think very many parents or very many district administrators really questioned whether the structure was the best for the kids. So one of the stories I heard from a lot of the teachers was that there would be these kids that were kind of in the quote unquote normal track and they were really smart and really gifted, and they would push and cajole to get these kids into the gifted classes. And then they'd be in the gifted classes for a week or two, and then they'd ask to go back to the normal classes because that's where all their friends were. And so the teachers were seeing the way that this was perpetuating all of the structures of essentially segregation or separation that they saw in the culture around them, and they really didn't want to be perpetuating. Seattle is one of the most segregated cities in America, 
And they saw exactly the same segregation in their own school, and they were really concerned about it. And so that became one of the main things that they wanted to solve. Another thing I thought was was really important about this was just the extent to which the teachers did this themselves. I thought, I mean, to spend three years having your staff brainstorm and coming up with just wild and wacky ideas to change the school. They were talking about having... Um, they, were, they thought about having no periods at one point. They thought about having no principal. They thought about, you know, having one teacher teach a bunch of different subjects. I mean, they really thought about every single structure that you could imagine. And they made a bunch of really small tweaks, too. Like, they got rid of bells, which is not, like, a huge game-changing thing. But it was something that just kind of reinforced the authoritativeness of the school and made the kids and the teachers kind of more on edge. It was, I mean, there were so many of these little tweaks that the teachers came up with. And it's... It's really because the teachers came up with them themselves that they were able to do this stuff. It wasn't being imposed from above. It was something that Benson was letting them doing. It was something Benson was letting them do. And it was something the district was letting Benson do. So there were all these kind of structures above them that were allowing them to design the reforms themselves. And that turned out to be really consequential. I'm sitting here watching my co-host Jack Schneider get more and more excited. Well, I'll I'll say agitated that this is this is like many of your books rolled rolled into one. It's like and, a book burrito. And we're you know we're we're hearing we're hearing something that clearly worked, and yet the idea that you could then go and sort of pitch this to a foundation. Can you imagine that pitch meeting? Like we want a billion dollars to let educators kind of think through stuff for a few years and we don't really know what the outcome is going to look like. We think it's going to be good for kids though. So what do you, um, when, when you hear Michael describing these, these teachers getting together and envisioning how they might change, not just problems within the school, but problems within the, within the city. There are like unicorns leaping over my heart when I hear that. And then, of course, the, the unicorns are immediately falling off into a deep chasm because I'm imagining, you know, some philanthropist hearing this pitch and saying, like, okay, so, but what's the part that's going to lift student achievement? And you say, like, well, okay, you know, we're going to do all these different things that teachers are going to meet, but, you know, and a part of it is the, the school will be a little bit smaller. The philanthropist goes, like, okay, so we're going to do small schools. And the result is going to be increased student achievement. And you can just see the reform dying. You know, it's like it, it has, to take a phrase of yours, the seeds of its own demise sown into it from the very beginning. And that's a pretty good description of where Michael's story goes next. He starts to investigate the chasm, as you just called it. There are no unicorns, but there's definitely a chasm between the reimagining of Hale High School and what happened when the Gates Foundation set out to take their small school's idea to scale. This happened in a lot of places. I mean, it sounds like, so I, you know, after I spent time at my school, I went back and I pulled the evaluations for all these other districts. There were something like 1,200 new schools that were established across the country and 800 schools that were quote unquote converted across the country based on these Department of Education and Gates Foundation grants for small schools. And so I pulled a bunch of the evaluations and it was fascinating how fast they were done. So a bunch of schools in Florida closed in June as large schools like mine and then opened in September as small schools. So they had three months to do it, whereas my school had three years to do it. 
A lot of the teachers didn't really know why it was being done at their school. It was just some consultant wearing a suit would come in and say, hey, from now on, all the kids are going to be in clusters. But it wasn't clear that that was really responding to the needs of that particular school or responding to the concerns of the teachers. I mean, the small school reforms at my school were based around the fact that the teachers were really concerned that the kids weren't getting to know each other and weren't getting role models. Whereas for other schools, it's not clear that the teachers really diagnose that to be the problem. So there's one little detail that I have not shared yet. Michael mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that he's pretty new to journalism. He's only been writing professionally for a couple of years, and this particular subject, education reform, was brand new to him when he started this story. His background is actually in international development, and the more he learned about the small schools experiment and the efforts to supersize it, the more familiar things felt. What it really reminded me of over and over again was the same mistakes that we make in international development, where something happens, it's a small pilot, it's done by really committed people that love their work and really care about the communities that they're in, and so they get these great results. And then everyone from outside starts looking at these great results, and they don't skeptically look at why those results happened or what the key components of those reforms really were. And so it seems like, you know, when you look at something like microfinance, which is something that everybody was excited about for years and years, and then it gets scaled up to almost every country in the world, and in more than half of them, it doesn't work all that well. And that's because we never looked at why does microfinance work in South Asia so well? Why does it work when it's implemented by these people that care really deeply about it? But nobody really looked at what it was about microfinance that really helped. And it's a little bit the same as the small schools reforms where no one really asked why are they working and what are the conditions under which they work. They became simply a structural reform. So all of a sudden, when it scales up to the rest of these, to these hundreds of other schools in the country, it becomes about smallness, smallness, smallness. And things like, are the teachers on board? Are the parents on board? Is this the correct diagnosis? Do people feel in control? Do people have the funding to roll these out? Are they really being done effectively? All of this stuff fell away, and it simply became about the structure. But the fact is, the structure was, you know, one-tenth or one-fifth of the reason why it worked at Nathan Hale, but nobody was really all that interested in how it worked or skeptically trying to roll it out slowly to figure out, you know, is this really the right solution for every school? It, te- I mean, maybe it was for my school and maybe it wasn't. I, I have this belief that it... it the control that the teachers had and the ownership that the teachers felt is why it worked. It's not really the idea. It's the fact that every single teacher in the school really felt strongly about it. So we've talked a little bit so far about why uh, big money philanthropists would be interested in small schools as a reform because it's so scalable, um, you know, so seemingly replicable. But the thing that he's talking about here is an equally important part of the puzzle, and that's the belief that improving schools is simple work that requires only common sense thinking, right? And this is something that you really begin to see in the late 20th century and carries into today, right? This this really arrogant notion that schools aren't that complicated and that one can just sort of look across schools and identify what works and then take it to scale. Uh, And so with small schools, you have Bill Gates uh, saying 
you know, on the public records, something along the lines of, you know, uh, I went to a small school. He went to Lakeside, which happens to be a, a very elite private school, um, and it was a small school, and uh, that seemed to, you know, really work. And then Tom Vanderark, who was then his uh, number one education person at the Gates Foundation, saying, you know, I went to a small school in Denver, which also was a private school, and and my wife went to a private school. We uh, went to a small school. We went to Denver Lutheran and Denver Catholic. I think Vander Ark and his wife went to, and they were small schools. And you can just see the cogs turning in Vander Ark's brain and Gates' brain. You can almost be at the table with them as they're saying, "Like, wait a minute, we've kind of figured it out here. Small, 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 good, good, good." Right, and they saw like a hundred percent correlation in these three cases. It's like this is not rocket science. Turn all the schools into small schools, and we've solved this, baby. Right, and so it's. I just think it's so amazing to hear that come across in such nitty gritty detail in this story. Well, and obviously because where Nathan Hale is in Seattle, this isn't just a story about big philanthropy. It's a story about a big philanthropist. <laughs> Right, yeah. right. That there, you know, like it, it's not just you know any school makeover. You know, it's they're in Bill Gates's backyard. Right, right, yeah, and and so you know, it's it's a really interesting case study in what we do and don't see, uh, depending on who we are. It's a bummer. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It's just you would think that being so close, they could have stop by the school and talk to Mr. Benson about why the reforms worked and how he came to the reforms and talk to teachers about how important it was that they were on board for the reforms. But it seems like what happened was what always happens and what I see in international development so much was that the reform just becomes this kind of totem where, hey, there's this obvious idea, let's split all the schools up into smaller ones without really figuring out or asking or being interested in why the reforms worked in the first place. I think it's also important to note that at the same time that the small schools reforms were rolling out, the No Child Left Behind was rolling out. So when small school reform became this big totem that the whole country was looking to, what they were interested in was graduation rates and drug use and kids knowing the teachers and kind of this idea of dropout factories that kids were going to these giant schools and not really knowing any of the adults within them. But by the time Gates Foundation kind of lost interest in the small schools reform. Everything was about standardized tests. And so when you read the original evaluations of the small learning communities reforms, they're not really talking about standardized tests that much. A lot of it is about attendance rates, graduation rates, dropout rates. But by the time they're over, they're saying, oh, the small schools reforms have failed because they're not affecting standardized test scores. But no one really set out to affect standardized test scores. And so Part of the kind of foundationization of education in America, one of the bad effects of that is that they just keep moving the goalposts. And so the diagnosis of what ails education in America used to be graduation rates and kind of this culture of poverty stuff, and now it's moved on to standardized test scores. And so for a lot of the schools, they're saying, well, the problem we were trying to solve is no longer the problem you want us to solve. So you're kind of blaming us for not solving this new problem, and that just isn't what we were setting out to do in the first place. In fact, as Michael dug into the quote-unquote metrics of the experiment, he found a lot of evidence that the small schools experiment resulted in measurable gains for students. But there was a catch. 
some of the evaluations that I was reading about schools around the country that implemented small learning communities, the reason why they were seen as quote unquote failures was because schools weren't hitting their targets. So schools had targets of graduation rates or target for attendance rates, targets for standardized test scores that they needed to reach. But then when you get into the consultants' reports, you're finding out that the schools were setting targets at 100% graduation rates, right? They were saying, it's a tragedy if any kid doesn't graduate from high school, so our target is 100% graduation rate. And these were schools with, you know, 50, 60% graduation rates. So what happened when they implemented the small schools reforms was actually that the graduation rates went up. So a lot of these schools went from 50% graduation rate to say 65 or 80%, which is really good, but because they had set this target at 100%, this completely unrealistic target, the consultants were of course saying, you failed because you didn't meet your target, but they weren't looking at the improvements holistically. And so this is kind of another effect, I think, of philanthropists getting into education is that consultants who are kind of brought in to evaluate school reforms aren't really looking at these things holistically. They're just kind of ticking boxes and figuring out and kind of auditing the school for these somewhat arbitrary improvements without looking at, hey, did the school actually get better overall? They're just looking at, did you reach the targets or not? And it becomes a binary distinction. The thing that's so appealing about these sort of huge scaled up reforms is the idea that really they can they can happen anywhere, right? And so what's kind of amazing about Michael's story is that, you know, he goes to the school and he he spends, you know, two weeks just listening to people and he learns everything about it. But you feel the city and the state sort of encroaching all around and you realize what a powerful effect. You can't separate the school from the environment that it's in, from the neighborhood and from the larger community. Yeah, totally. It's like dropping down a new species into an ecosystem and expecting that it is going to thrive in the same way it did in the ecosystem that you wrenched it out of. Uh, and so, of course, you know, nature is going to act upon this, uh, you know, this this little reform that you've dropped down, and it's going to uh, shift the context. Uh, in a way that you know perhaps completely undermines uh, the goals of the reform. I mean, this is another thing that's uh, that's just so kind of depressing about spending time at the school was that that it's it's not that the ideas have failed; it's that everything supporting them has failed. So, the Seattle has in I think it was 1992 we passed a statewide referendum, one of these kind of anti-tax referendums that always win elections but then completely cripple every city in the state that the revenues from property taxes can only grow at 1% per year. So if the city wants to do anything above and beyond that, they have to send a levy to the voters to top up their funding. So, excuse me. Um, so inflation is 2% every year. And since city revenues can only grow at 1% every year, that means that every year is a budget cut. So Seattle is one of the biggest, one of the fastest growing cities in America. And yet... All of these kind of the core general fund budget for the city is actually in real terms shrinking every year. And the only way that we can fund our schools is through these kind of levies, you know, education levies that they put to the voters. And they always pass. But according to the Washington State Constitution, these levies can only fund special projects. They can't fund basic operations. So the school that I'm profiling, Nathan Hale, got a $80 million renovation over the last couple of years, 
but it can't keep the heat on past 3, 10 p.m. every day because you can't pay for that with levy funding. Sorry, what that looks like for the schools is, you know, you just have ballooning class sizes that it used to be 23 to 25 kids, and that was a huge goal of the reformers was to keep the class sizes small. But now what's happening is some of the classes are 35 kids, and in general, they're 28, 30, 32 kids, and it's just a completely different classroom. When you've got kids of very different abilities in there, you've got kids that speak different languages, you've got kids on the autism spectrum, you've got 20% of the school that has IEPs now that is um, what we used to call special ed. At 32 kids, that's like six kids that need special assistance, and it's really hard to run a classroom like that when some of the kids aren't aren't able to speak English, some of the kids are falling behind, some of the kids are way ahead and they're really bored. It's just all of that kind of individual tailoring is so much easier at 23 kids in a class than it is at 32. And so over and over again, I heard the teachers say, you know, sometimes kids are falling through the cracks and I know that kids are falling through the cracks. They just slip off my radar, but what can I do? You know, I'm, I'm seeing 150 kids a day. I can't always remember the needs that all of them have. I can't sort of go back for them in the class or slow down the whole class to make sure that they understand. Sometimes you just have to keep going. And so this is, it breaks the hearts of the teachers, but it's it's not really that the ideas there have failed. It's just that there just isn't enough time, isn't enough resources to really take care of these kids in the way the teachers originally wanted to. That was Michael Hobbs. He's the author of The Afterlife of Big Ideas in Education Reform, a story that ran this summer in Pacific Standard Magazine. And Speaking of afterlives, you know, I think it's worth returning to talk about the way that the Gates Foundation transitioned away from this. Um, you know, it was a big deal when Bill Gates uh, announced that the foundation was going to drop its small schools initiative, but instead of seeing some sort of flaw in their own design, uh, Gates and Others, you know, really doubled down on this approach to school reform. In fact, Gates said uh, that the letdowns of the small schools movement, quote, underscored the need to aim high and embrace change in America's schools, which is so illustrative of this approach, uh, you know, this common sense approach to school reform. So I have in front of me a 2014 study by MDRC which found that graduation rates in New York City improved by 9.5% at small schools, and that was across every student demographic group. And another study by a team at Northwestern found similar increases in high school graduation rates in Chicago's public schools. And so small schools, as it turns out, do exactly what you might think. Uh, you know, They allow for stronger kinds of relationships, which ultimately may help keep kids in school um, and build school culture and the like, but probably not... Uh, radically transform a school on their own and produce the kinds of gains in student achievement as measured by standardized test scores, which became the coin of the realm there. Um, and so instead of recognizing the importance of context or the inescapable complexity of education, uh, the approach was to simply say that small schools failed, uh, they had picked the wrong horse, and that they were going to go place their bets on something else. Um, and that's, of course, a recipe for policy churn, which really just distracts us from the real work of school improvement, uh, which, as he described, is so much slower and messier and bottom-up uh, than, you know, using common sense and trying to take something to scale. There 
is so much in that story that really stayed with me. But I think the you know the the image that I just can't shake is that what you know our our whole sort of recent history of bold education reform might look different had some officials from the Gates Foundation visited this school in their backyard and actually talked to administrators and teachers about what was working. And that if they went back there today and saw how Seattle is straining against the sort of, you know, um, uh, these political spending limits that have been imposed, perhaps Gates might change course again. Although that, of course, uh, would depend on a foundation designed with a particular purpose and with a particular kind of purse being able to see in a particular kind of way, which would be surprising to me. Well, on that grim note, (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. Thank you for listening to Have You Heard. Have You Heard.